0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. to get thirty, thirty. to get thirty, to get to 20, 20, 20, get to 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, Just fifteen bucks a month. So, give it a try at MintMobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at MintMobile.com.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: The Korean War, quote unquote, ended exactly 50 years ago at Panmunjom on tw- July 27, 1953. United States and Nations commanders on one side, and the North Koreans and Chinese commanders on the other, agreed to an immediate cessation of hostilities. Most histories of the Korean War stop there. Yet the war ended in a truce, not a proper peace agreement. The specter of conflict has loomed over the Korean peninsula in the five decades since, changing development in both North and South Korea as each tries to secure their own future amidst a conflict that, in theory, could return at any point. Today, we're joined by Michael J. Seth, who joins the show to talk about this development and his latest book, Korea at War, Conflicts That Shaped the World, published by Tuttle. The book is about much more than just the war itself, as Seth looks at Korea's pre- and post-war history. Now, South Korea is unique in charting its own development while still, technically, in a state of war. Michael J. Seth is a reserve of history at James Madison University. He has authored several books on Korean history, including A History of Korea from Antiquity to the Present, A Concise History of Modern Korea from the 19th Century to the Present, and Education Fever, Politics, Society, and the Pursuit of Schooling in South Korea. So, Michael, thank you for, for joining us on the Asian Review of Books podcast today. Um, you know, I think before we start getting into kind of the 20th century history of Korea, um, I want to ask, you know, what do you think is missing from the way you know, regular people, the layperson, talks about uh, Korea and
1: the Korean War? Well, those are really two different topics. One, Korean War and um, Korea. As far as the Korean War is concerned, people don't talk about it very much. It has been called the Forgotten War, and it has been. It's, uh, it was overshadowed by World War II that preceded it by just five years and, and by other conflicts such as the Vietnam War uh, that occurred some years later. And um, it is surprising how little people know or how little interest there is in the Korean War Considering this uh, a major conflict, and is the only conflict since World War II in which two major world powers were fighting each other—the United States and China—in spite of that fact, is surprisingly little known. And then,
0: and then, how does how does this? Um, I guess how does this lack of knowledge, lack of understanding about the Korean, for, Korean War um, affect, again, the, the average person's understanding of, of Korean history?
1: Well, because they don't realize how important that war was, and they also don't realize that the war is not over. Yeah. Uh, all there was in 1953 was a ceasefire. I think perhaps that is the most important fact. North and South Korea remain technically at war, And as such, it is the longest war in modern history. Uh, And the fact that North and South Korea have been continuously at war for 70-some years, and uh, I would say the war technically started in 1950, but they were actually fighting each other even before that. I would say the war began in 48, and that would make it a 75-year war. And the fact that those two countries have been at war for 75 years uh, is important in understanding them. And why is that important? Well, first, first there's North Korea. North Korea uh, strikes most people as the world's strangest, weirdest country, and I think in many ways it is. But it is also a problem. It's a serious problem that we have difficulty solving. A source of instability in the world, and South Korea is an amazing success story. It's uh, it's really uh, unprecedented. A country so poor as South Korea, in a couple of generations, becoming one of the world's wealthiest, most technically advanced countries, and a major source of world culture. So let's start. Let's
0: start talking about. The history and I like to start with the with the Japanese um, occupation colonization of Korea. You know, you make you make a point in your book um, that uh, that that the experience of Koreans under the Japanese have led the uh, Japanese to be to be um, people people still have very strong negative feelings about the Japanese um, because of the because of the occupation and and what happened there, um, which plays out. Even today, with some of the disputes between South Korea and and Japan, um, even though they both exist under the U.S. security umbrella, um, but I guess what what was the, what was the Japanese colonization of Korea actually like, and and why has it made such this
1: such a mark on Koreans even today? Well, it was a humiliating experience for the Koreans, but let's just uh, look at. Japanese colonialism. It was a little different than the average imperialism, and I want to point out that imperialism is always a an unpleasant experience for the people who are dominated by the imperialists. I think we forget how brutal imperialism is because uh, when it gives one group of people, one nation, almost uh, total freedom to uh do what they please with another people's. And that all doesn't usually bring out the best in people. The Dutch were very often very brutal uh, and used forced labor in Indonesia. Uh the British and the French regularly used forced labor. We we could talk about the Belgians and the Congo being especially brutal. But as far as the Japanese, they were probably uh no worse in forms in terms of uh, brutality, insensitivity uh, to local culture and peoples and their needs, and uh, exploitative than most imperialists. But unlike uh, almost anywhere else, the Japanese left a deep, deep bitterness among North and South Korean people. In fact that's one thing that all Koreans can, North and South can agree on is the Japanese were really terrible. So why is that? And I think there's several reasons for it. And that that Japanese imperialism was kind of unusual. One is that uh, unlike, I'd say, French or British imperialism, uh, or American imperialism in the Philippines, uh, it was not a remote, distant peoples that were. Uh, who had conquered, essentially, and occupied Korea. But it was a next-door neighbor, someone that was uh, familiar to Korean people that they had long experience with, including uh, previous attempts by the Japanese to invade and conquer Korea. So, in a way, it was more like the German occupation of France. It was considered by Koreans an occupation by an aggressive and long uh feared uh neighbor so that was it made it a little different another thing that was different about it was the japanese pursued a policy of forced assimilation they made an attempt essentially to eliminate a sense of korean identity altogether this is rather unusual it was not a consistent policy but it was um a policy that became more central to the Japanese enterprise in Korea uh, in the later years of the occupation, especially in the 30s and early 1940s. What do I mean by that? Well, Koreans were actually forced to change their names to Japanese names. They were forced to register at Shinto shrines, and Shintoism has nothing to do with Korea. It's a totally alien religion. Uh, Korean language publications and newspapers were banned. Uh, Korean students could be punished for speaking their own language in the school. And Koreans were told that they were really always part of Japan, that they, they were the same people that somehow got separated and now are being united together. And, and this, of course, was uh, this was a very traumatic tool of an ancient, distinctive, proud people with a rising sense of nationalism, as was the case with Korea. There is one other element I could say about it that's also a little different as well, is that Korea is a very homogeneous society. There were no significant ethnic minorities before the uh, at the time of the Japanese occupation of the country, which took place between 1905 and 1910. And Koreans had been an independent unified state. You look at most of the former colonies, Indonesia, there was never a place called Indonesia until it was created by the, the Dutch as a, in the form of the Dutch East India or Nigeria, well, creation of the British. Korea was different. Korea was a country that was unified in the seventh century, making it older than any state in Europe. And it had its own language, its own cultural traditions, its own sense of identity, its own writing system. Uh, So the Koreans, uh, and it was a country that was fairly isolated and not uh, used to the presence of any foreigner for any reason in the country, let alone a foreign occupier. So all those things, I think, uh, contribute to the fact that Koreans had a a very intense resentment against the Japanese. And I want to add one thing to that. Both North and South Korea, uh, both governments, have actually uh, used this as a way to... uh, Establish the legitimacy of their regimes. In other words, Koreans are continually taught uh, about how horrible the Japanese are. And if you watch any, uh, if you watch enough Korean movies or television shows, uh, whenever they show something in the colonial uh, period, the Japanese are always uh, unmitigatedly uh, evil, sinister people. And so this is perpetuated by popular culture, but also by by government intentionally as a way of building a sense of national identity through a shared suffering and grievance towards the Japanese. Um, of course, the, the Japanese are
0: then defeated in the Second World War. Korea becomes um, independent, though though split between between North and South. I mean, how how did the I guess how did the end of the Second World War Um, really put the two Koreas, start them on these different trajectories?
1: Well, Korea was partitioned by the United States and the Soviet Union. It had nothing to do with Koreans. Koreans didn't even know about it. Uh, At the closing days of World War II, uh, the United States actually uh, came up with uh, an idea of partitioning the country along the 38th parallel. Uh, a, A line that was has no basis in history or geography it was just a line on a map that conveniently divided the peninsula into two roughly equal size halves and it was a totally arbitrary line it cut across the middle of provinces it, d- it divided valleys it divided villages it divided families and had no no there was no basis there was no separate northern or southern korean culture uh, and uh, it was done without the knowledge of any Korean. No one, no World Korean was consulted in this, and the Koreans didn't even know about it until weeks after World War II ended. So uh, that's so that's how that there are two Koreans, and the division of Korea. It should be understood was totally unacceptable to all Koreans. The Koreans are uh, they. The one thing the Koreans shared at the end of World War II was a desire to have their traditional state, maybe not the traditional government or way of life, but the historic Korean state restored as a sovereign nation. And the division of the country by foreigners was something that no Korean could accept. So you noted in,
0: in, in the answer to, to my first question, um, that, that North and South Korea started actually started fighting um, or started to fight in 1948. Now, I mean the, the, the quote unquote official start of the Korean War is when North Korea invades in 1950. Um, but what's actually happening in those years before uh, b- before um, the Korean War, again, quote unquote, officially starts? Um, how were, how were these two countries engaging with each other, I guess, both diplomatically and militarily before the war begins?
1: Well, neither, neither government, and remember these governments were set up. The North Korean government, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was, was, was created by the Soviet Union. Even the constitution was written by them. It was written in Russian and translated in Korean and say, here's your constitution, here's your government, right? Uh, and- the United States wasn't quite as heavy-handed as that, but largely South Korea was the creation of the United States Republic of Korea. But it was not anything that Koreans wanted. They, they each government considered itself the legitimate government of the whole peninsula. And to give you an idea, uh, the constitution of North Korea, of North Korea, stated that Seoul was the capital. In fact, it names. Seoul, it just means the capital city in Korea, Seoul. And um, so <laughs> the North Koreans could hardly say that our capital is, is anything other than dog capital. So uh, Pyongyang was considered just a temporary. In fact, the term that the North Koreans used from 1948, it was the base camp until the com- completion of unification and liberation uh, is... Uh, Is done. So, uh, therefore, it it, the from the very beginning, the aim of North Korea was to continue the the struggle first, the struggle against the Japanese, and now the struggle to unify and restore the state. Uh, The South Korea said the same thing. The South Korea when they created the first National Assembly had three hundred seats, two hundred from the North representatives and one hundred. I'm sorry, two hundred from. Representatives from the south, southern districts, and 100 from the north. They let 100 remain empty, but they still technically uh, they were were part of the national assembly. North South Korea never regarded itself as a South Korean state, but the state of all of Korea. And the slogan of the first government of South Korea, 1948, Sigmund Rhee, was march north, <laughs> right? And that's what he planned to do as soon as he could, finish the liberation of the country. So it was a volatile, unworkable, unrealistic idea to have two separate Koreas when it was totally unacceptable to all Koreans. So I think in our, again,
0: kind of when, when we talk about the Korean War, we tend to focus on people like... um People like MacArthur, people like uh, on the Chinese side, uh, Peng Dehui, maybe they talk about Syngman Rhee and and, uh, Kim Il-sung as kind of the leaders of the both Koreas. the But you don't actually hear that much about um, the Koreans that fight. It's always about the Americans and it's always about the Chinese fighting the Americans. Um, But who are some of the major figures in Korea on either side, either North or South? That
1: well, there a was one girl. dominant figure in each, but in the North, we'll start with the North. Uh, the North, of course, was Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung was a, a young guerrilla fighter and an anti-Japanese independence fighter from Manchuria in the 1930s uh, and early 40s who had become an uh, officer in the Red Army during World War II and uh, was centrally selected. By the Soviet occupiers to be the great leader, the little Stalin, as they called, they jokingly referred to them at the time of of the new North Korean state. And he was a soldier; he was a fighter, and and to him, it was just his purpose was to finish the job and unify the country. But there was another very important figure in North Korea. That was a man named Park Hang Young. And Park Kong Young is so colorful that you. The stories about it are really interesting. He was actually the leader of the underground communist party, and he was from the south, not from the north. Uh, and I should point out that uh, that uh, it wasn't northern North Koreans against South Koreans. It was uh, Koreans that 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 supported the regime in the north against Koreans supported the regime in the south. Most of the officers of the South Korean army were actually from the north. And many of the leaders of the North were from the South. They had, you know. So I, I should I want to point that out. And Park On Young was uh, uh, convinced uh, that the South Korean people would, the people in the South would would uh, support any North Korean invasion, and we know this because we we, we have the. We have the telegrams and letters and flying back and forth, and he managed certainly managed to convince both Kim Il Sung and Stalin and Mao, uh, and Mao as well, uh, to, uh, of that that there was sufficient uh, source uh, support in the south for unification. So they're really key figures in the south. Sigmund Re uh, from you know, was so determined to. O- occupied the North, that the United States did not trust him and would not give him any weapons. They would not give him any tanks. They would not give him any, give him any uh, planes. And even the few artillery pieces they put under control of American uh, officers because they didn't trust him. They thought he would invade the North as soon as he could. And, and he was determined to unify the country. He was also a staunch anti-communist. Uh, and a nationalist hero, by the way. Both Kim Il-sung and, and uh, Sigmund Rhee were, had legitimate nationalist, anti-Japanese uh, credentials and were respected by many Korean people for that reason. Uh, uh, there were other people in the South, but I would say Sigmund Rhee is the dominant figure. There are several generals, uh, the two Pak brothers, both from North Korea, uh, from North Korea, from the Pyongyang, actually, uh, were key because they were they were really determined to to uh, uh, reunite the country and were quite aggressive and probably provoked a lot of incidences, hoping to start a war. Uh, But those are some of the key people um i have one more question on the war
0: itself i know the book's about much more than the korean war um but you know you mention again the book that the war could have ended much earlier um you know obviously if if uh if macarthur hadn't hadn't driven the north koreans all the way up to the Chinese border the korean war might have ended years earlier it might not have had the years of stalemate um at the end um would the history of Korea have been different if the war had ended many,
1: many like a several years earlier? Well, that's a counterfactual question. What if? And we never know what if. But uh, it, I don't think uh, anything short of unification would have brought about a permanent peace. I think it's an unstable situation. Was an unstable situation to have a country. Where there was such a strong sense of being one people divided into two opposing regimes, I don't think that was sustainable. I think, as far as just bloodshed, uh, after the uh, success of the Incheon landing, by the end of September of 1950, the war had only been going on, uh, you know, four months by that time, and uh, if, and the North Korean army was defeated. And if uh, MacArthur had uh, decided that we should accept that and, and 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 work out a peace, he would have probably gotten a peace at that time. The Chinese were uh, had warned the U.S. that they would not tolerate a American troops on their border and warned them not to invade the north. Uh, and uh, but. Uh, he decided. Well, he defeated the North Koreans. Let's uh, liberate the the North, and of course, uh, that's exactly what the South Koreans, especially Sigmund Rhee, want. There, they they wanted to the unify. In fact, the South Koreans never waited for uh, a permission. This is a little known fact about the South uh, about the Korean War, even before MacArthur uh, got Truman's approval. Truman's got the UN blessing for for uh, to invasion of the North. Uh, Singman Ray already sent South Korean troops into the north. He wasn't going to wait for anybody's permission, so uh, uh, you know it's it's possible that it would have been hard hard to contain the South Korean's uh, army. But I think you could have contained it if you really tried and brought the war to an end. But it would have remained tense, and it doesn't mean that that fighting wouldn't have broken out uh, later. Um,
0: So you mentioned you mentioned obviously that um again kinda of, kinda of throughout this interview that the war doesn't end. It's only a ceasefire, it's only a it's only a truce. Um and so I guess as North and South Korea continue to develop, um, I guess the war continues to kind of loom over both countries' heads. Um, I mean, how how does the war, uh and I guess it's it's how and how it's technically still continuing, um, how does that affect the development and divergence of north and south korea
1: yeah that's a good question and to me that's what is the most interesting part of this whole conflict between north and south korea you got to really look at these two countries uh they're both rather extraordinary i don't think most people realize what uh how unusual both North and South Korea are. Maybe North Korea, but they don't realize how unusual South Korea. If you look at these two countries, you have nothing like this in history, no other comparison. You have a ancient, unified, homogeneous society that's been arbitrarily cut in half, and they develop in two generations radically different societies. There's no place in the world where two countries border one another that are as different as uh, North and South Korea. There's no other place where two countries border each other where one country has 20 times the per capita income of the other. There's no two examples of a countries that, that are one of the freest and most democratic in the world borders, the most authoritarian state in the world. There's just, you don't see that. And, and, and how did that happen? How did they evolve so differently and so unusually? North Korea became the most uh most closed, isolated. I mean, no place is as isolated in North Korea. It's the only place in the world not connected to the World Wide Web. It's the no only place in the world where they don't sell Coca-Cola. It really is a, a, a closed, isolated world in itself. And it's a uh, it's all you know, it's also very authoritarian it's a very totalitarian state it's a it's a a poverty-stricken country it's estimated that at least 40 percent of the children are stunted for malnutrition in the country that's a figure that, that you don't even have in the poorest countries in africa that's that's a shocking thing and yet this is a country that has that that is so poor and yet it has intercontinental ballistic missiles. It has missiles that is launched from submarines and has a a nuclear stockpile. This is quite extraordinary. I don't have any uh, example of a country so poor and yet having such a sophisticated military armory. So uh, this is a very strange country. And, and, and this cult of personality that are ruled by a, a royal family uh, very very unique in, in North Korea. And then South Korea, uh, again, I would point out that there it, I can't think of another example in history of a country like South Korea. South Korea in 1960 had a per capita income the same as Haiti. and it was considered like Haiti. Uh, it was a country that was seemed to be hopelessly mired in poverty, and yet, rather unexpectedly and unpredictably, it, it, it transformed itself into a wealthy, technologically uh, advanced country with a culture, a popular culture that 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 is of global significance. There is no other; the only example of a country transforming itself from poverty to well, a wealthy technologically advanced. The only other case we have in the 20th century is Taiwan. And, then, and and so Taiwan is also an amazing feat. But Taiwan has not made itself a global cultural uh, power as South Korea. And that's an amazing thing, too. I mean, South Korea was an unknown country. The only thing Americans knew about it was from, uh, from mass television. Uh, and now it's you know k-pop everywhere great intelligence uh, uh movies and it, it's it's just a major uh, a, a center of of global culture it to, to move from such obscurity to being a center stage in and in, in world culture that's unprecedented so uh I think there are really extraordinary histories of these two countries and I you know, there are many things to ways we can explain about it. But what I wanted to point out in this book is that all the different economic studies about, uh, and social studies about South Korea and its development and the analysis of North Korea, they, uh, they don't necessarily factor in to the extent that they should. The fact that these countries have been at war for 75 years uh, is a major reason that they developed in such extreme ways. And I'll be happy to give you examples of this, but this is the larger point that I'm trying to make uh, about this. Oh, well, like
0: that's a good segue. Could you please, I mean, what are some of these examples um, that you think uh, uh,
1: uh, show this? Okay. No, let's take the problem of. Well, uh, uh, let's look at South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, South Korea in the first decade after the Korean War in the nineteen fifties, it, it was not making much economic progress. It was North Korea was North Korea was the real success story. It it went through rapid industrialization and development in the first decade after World uh, after the Korean War, and. Um, this was very, very disturbing. So, uh, to from a national security point of view, also, it undermined the legitimacy of the South Korean regime. How could it say it's the true representative of the Korean nation when they're not uh, delivering economically, when they are a, a poor country dependent on foreign aid in North Korea is this dynamic, modern, industrializing country? So... Uh, this was a major motivation for the military coup in 1961, and the military looked at it from from a strategic point of view. Uh, if we're going to survive and compete with North Korea, we're going to have to industrialize very quickly too. Uh, so this was an added spur. I'm not saying it's the reason why South Korea developed, but it's a factor. And also another thing, a lot of uh, that may not be obvious. Is how initially in the 1960s South Korea was actually influenced by what the North Koreans were doing. They built, they they launched five-year plans. They tried. They the Park Chung Hee regime wanted to emphasize heavy industry like the North Korea did. They could be converted for military use, uh, and uh, if if one any proof of this, uh, Park Chung Hee uh, wrote very clearly that this was a national strategic need. We have to modernize and industrialize. Uh, uh, we, we, have to, we have no choice uh, if we're going to survive as a nation. So that, the competition was a spur to South Korea's development. Again, it's not the only reason it developed, nor does it explain why it was so successful, but it was an important factor. In the case of North Korea, it was the same idea. The North Koreans, uh, after all, were they, they only had a third of the population, although they had half the territory, and they lacked the historical capital. Uh, a Korea without Seoul is like a France without Paris. <laughs> so uh, they, they felt themselves in the, uh, a somewhat inferior position and, and trying to promote themselves as the true Korea. And they need to demonstrate that they were by showing that their regime was successful. It could, make, it could transform the, the half of Korea that it ruled into a proud, independent, uh, advanced industrial nation. And, and that was a strong motivation of, of, of North Korea's industrialization as well. So yeah, uh, the rivalry between the two was extremely important in their development. Uh, I would add a couple of more things. The rivalry uh, between the two was uh, an excuse for authoritarian regimes in, the, in, in South Korea to crack down and dissent. Uh, and that's a, a that's rather ugly chapter in South Korea's history, the national security law. Everything was national security. Uh, you're aiding the enemy by criticizing the regime. So, so that, and in North Korea, uh, the rivalry between the the South was also, and the fact that they were continually at war was an excuse for authoritarian uh, measures. In fact, North Korea more than South Korea has come to rely on the fact we are at war. And the fighting will take place, could take place at any moment as a way to keep the people isolated and disciplined and controlled.
0: So, I mean, where do you see, I guess, where where do you see this conflict and its effect on the Korea's development going from here? Um, I mean, first of all, I think uh, I'm pretty sure people are not very optimistic that there'll be any kind of forward movement on inter-Korean relations, at least in the short term. Um people obviously talk about Kim Jong Kim Jong un's younger sister maybe being the next number two. Um it's not clear what China's role is. Um but where do you where do you see um this this relationship going over the next let's
1: say three, four years? Well I think to answer that question might be useful to see how that the relationship uh, has changed, and it has changed in one fundamental way. Uh, from 19, late 1940s up to uh, maybe into the early 1980s, it was a rivalry between two uh, regimes that both claimed to be the legitimate regime of all Koreans. But by the 1980s, uh, North Korea's development stagnated, it became increasingly isolated in the world just as uh, uh, South Korea's economic development was accelerating and it was coming out in the world. I, I, if you want a t- turning point, you can say 1988 Olympics. Uh, virtually every country in the world participated in it and it was a great coming out party for, for South Korea uh, to show that we have arrived. And, and it came at a time when North Korea's economy was faulting. And then by the 1980s, uh, uh, North Korea's economy was so bad and such such dire straits that people were speculating how long the regime could possibly survive, whereas South Korea just continued on modernizing and developing, and of course it, and democratizing. So what what you really see is that by some time, I would say during the 1980s. Uh, it was no longer a rivalry between two regimes. It was South Korea forging ahead, and North Korean regime trying to survive. And the sole purpose of the the sole purpose today of the North Korean regime is to survive, to maintain itself, to keep from collapsing, to keep from being absorbed by South Korea, whatever else might happen, to keep uh, uh, the leaders from being overthrown, put on trial, hanged in the streets. They're just trying to survive. And this uh, changes somewhat the nature. So South Korea doesn't, you know, for South Korea, North Korea has uh, become a problem, a kind of backward part of the country, politically unstable with a oppressive regime uh, a problem they they have to deal with, but it's not a rival. There's no there's no one that admires the North Korean regime. In fact, the great fear of South Korea now is that North Korea would collapse, and they'd have to deal with 25 million impoverished uh, uh, compatriots that lack the skills that you need in a high tech world. Uh, what would they do? This would probably overwhelm them. So, so actually, many North. What's happened now, as some, this is rather recent years, is that many uh, South Koreans no longer want really unification or don't want it now, maybe in the distant future. But they really just want to find some way that, that North Korea could modernize uh, and become less of a threat or, or, or an economic burden to them should the regime fall.
0: Mm. Well, I think with that um, kind of forward look, uh, I think it's a good place to end our conversation with Michael Seth, author of Korea at War. Um, Michael, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think your next project might be?
1: I'm already working on So I have a book under contract now. It's a biography of Kim Il-sung. Oh, and I plan to. I actually haven't read it yet, but I have done the res, all the research and have the ideas working out in my head. So I plan to. I plan to have the uh, manuscript ready for the publisher by, you know, let's say by the. A year from now, I should be ready. So maybe in a year, you know, those things take a while. Sometimes publishers don't publish mm-hmm. right away, but it should be out within the next two years. So that'll be my next book on Korea. I'm actually working on a, another book that has nothing to do with Korea, but uh, I do write about other things. Mostly, I write about Korea, but I do write about other things. I teach world history, and I write on that. Um, so that would be that's the next thing. So if you want to, you uh, Jim. El the North Korean founder. And as far as finding the book, well, uh, I guess on Amazon <laughs> it should be up. Um, it's called Korea War, uh, published by Tuttle. It should uh, should be available on, on Amazon.
0: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Um, stay tuned for more news who's coming up on the show. But before then, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.